Welcome to the Celtics Reddit podcast. My name is Jake Eisenberg, and I'm joined by our fearless leader. He's back from a brief hiatus. Ben, how are you? I don't know about fearless, mate. I'm a little nervous about being <laughs> in the co-host chair for the first time ever, uh, but I'm doing great, mate. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm feeling good today because we're joined by a very special guest, Evan Damerol, uh, the Cleveland sports grand poobah. Uh, Evan, thanks for joining us. How are you, mate? I haven't been called Grand Pooba, but uh, I'm I'm good. <laughs> I, I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, how are you guys doing this week? Yeah, mate, we're good. We're slowly crawling our way through the NBA offseason. Um, yeah, day by day. It's uh, I mean, we're really scraping the barrel for news with the uh, with the the schedule being leaked, like one team at a time for a single matchup. But yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, I feel you on that. It's um. At least from the Cavs side of things, in terms of my coverage, it's always, hey, what's going on with Colin Sexton, or is LeBron coming back, or <laughs> for that brief moment, Cavs fans thought maybe, just maybe, Kevin Durant would be an option for them, but uh, it's it's silly season, I think we're waiting for Donovan Mitchell to get traded at this point, maybe yeah. Kevin Durant gets traded because he, he says he's not retiring, but I think yeah. he doesn't even have a full forecast on what how he's doing as a player, but... We'll see. I don't know. It's interesting times. Uh, like the Cavs are had a relatively quiet off season, and I think for me, as somebody who needs to recharge his battery a little bit after a pretty impactful season for the Cavs, I, I appreciated they got all their stuff done pretty early into the free agency period. Yeah. Nice. Um, but yeah, so second episode of our rival teams series, where we get the experts of the Eastern Conference competitors to give us the inside scoop um, on their teams off season and how they're going to stack up against the Seas. Um, but, yeah, so let's dive right into it. Um, yes, as you kind of mentioned, like, Cleveland, massive season for them, kind of came out of nowhere, smashing their preseason over-under of 27 and a half. Um, yeah, and I'm ashamed to say that I actually had the under on that one going into last season, which um, Cavs fans might call surprising. But, yeah, I mean, not call surprising, but for me it was a bit of a surprise. But, yeah, so what were the vibes uh, coming out of last season? they got to be pretty high. So don't feel bad about smashing the under. I, I did as well. Um, <laughs> okay. Prior to the season uh, on my show, we, we talk about betting lines for certain teams and we really focused on the Cavs. And we talked at length about uh, how, why we were taking the under on this team. And it, it's understandable why a lot of people would. And I think that's what made that last season so much more fun is expectations were relatively low heading into last year. And the Cavs kind of shattered every expectation about them and then some. And to answer your question, I think the vibe's pretty good. It's hard to get a full like pull, finger on the pulse of the team just because it's the offseason. The guys aren't fully together. They are in Los Angeles. Uh, Sans Colin Sexton and I think Larry Market and Jetty Osmond and possibly Kevin Love because he's still on his honeymoon um, doing like a team voluntary player workout. So it's good to see the guys together. I think the vibes just in general have been good. Uh, I think that's just like a trickle-down effect just from the quote-unquote culture that Cleveland's trying to build without LeBron on the roster. And I think just bringing back Ricky Rubio, I think having these guys who are in their early 20s or just turning 20, if you're having Mobley's case, um, just becoming like the leaders and the faces of the franchise and just kind of building that foundation is a true testament to what J.B. Bickerstaff's trying to do and trying to build sustainable success. And I, it's exciting heading into this season. I think some fans' expectations are maybe a little too high, and I'm not going to tell you how to be a fan. I'm going to be cautiously optimistic just because your Celtics have had a pretty good season. I know it came up short, not the way you guys may have wanted, but pretty good season in general last year. And then the East has gotten pretty better. Uh, the Nets are still a bit of a wild card, but we'll see what happens. I think Cleveland has a really a puncher's chance in the conference this year, at least to at least make the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many, so many young guys, so much young talent. And the, the downfall, if you want to call it that, for the Cavs last season, really it could be pitted to just injuries. I mean, Jarrett, Jarrett Allen had that thumb injury that kept him out of the playing game. And then all this young talent, uh, you know, Okoro, Markinen, Sexton possibly, uh, Jarrett Allen, like I said, and of course Garland and Mobley all coming back 
a year older, a year wiser. You mentioned that there are a lot of Cavs fans who are sort of um, unreasonably high on the Cavs. I mean, uh, kind of reminds me of like recent Celtic season before Tatum and Brown matured into what they are now. We were unreasonably high going into all of those seasons just because of like what could be to come with that young talent. Is there a sense of that? I feel like there would be an overwhelming sense of like all these guys logically will improve somewhat. They were already great last season prior to the injuries and therefore with health behind them, they, they could be great coming into this upcoming season. So that's, that's an interesting point. So last season, like you mentioned, a lot of injuries were kind of a consistent theme of the Cavs, whether it was Sexton going down 11 games into the season with a torn meniscus or Rubio going down with a torn ACL or Garland dealing with those nagging back problems or Mobley dealing with the sprained elbow or Allen with his thumb. Like there's just in marketing and love missing serious time due to COVID or Karis Levert being out for a month due to foot injuries. Like, a lot of things just kind of didn't go Cleveland's way at the end of the season. And I think you saw a little bit of that youth and experience rear its head, especially at the worst time. And I think, you know, drawing the Eastern Conference runner-up Atlanta Hawks from the season prior to last season and the Brooklyn Nets who are, you know, have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving who are a pretty seasoned squad to begin with. Like, that's a pretty tough draw to, draw to ask any young team to play in scenario. But like you said, that that's valuable experience. I think winning just helps a lot of things for this Cavs team. I think there's kind of maybe a little bit of a target on their back. There's an expectation now heading into next, this upcoming season. Um, I'm going to be writing about it a little bit as I do a schedule breakdown. Where it's just like, okay, the target is now on their back. Like there's expectations. People know how they like to play. Like no one's going to be surprised when they see Larry Market and starting at the three next season or them playing Dean Wade or Kevin Love next to Jarrett Allen and Evan Mobley and just maybe try and go as big as possible. Like there's different ways and expectations but like you said, you're you're expecting a leap more so from these young guys because in terms of an offseason, their biggest acquisition was either Ochai Abaji through the draft or signing Ricky Rubio to part of their mid-level exception. And after that, it's signing Raul Neto and Robin Lopez to vet men deals. And you're just kind of hoping for the internal growth and development of your guys. And I think you'll see it, obviously, especially from Evan Mobley, because... You look at his game last season, he was so solid defensively that you kind of failed to notice at times that he doesn't have much of a quote-unquote bag offensively, but there's a lot of interesting stuff he saw towards the end of his rookie season, especially that game against Toronto on ESPN really sticks out to a lot of people, but there's a lot of games where like the Cavs can lean more heavily on Mobley and maybe find more creative ways to utilize him. I think Jared Allen, even though he's entering his eighth year, I believe, still has potential just because he's still a young guy on this team. And he's like showed wow. some interesting stuff even over the contract extension. Like he showed a little bit of switchability on the perimeter, which is unexpected to say the least, just in terms of defensive versatility. And Darius Garland took the biggest leap of all last season where he kind of went nuclear, where a lot of us were expecting, at least in the media sphere, him to take that pseudo third leap that any guard or any young player takes. But no one quite saw this season coming from him, and it was kind of remarkable to watch him unfold. So we're not maybe expecting something like that, and that's just for me and probably the fans as well. But there's going to be more with him because, one, there's the expectation now where, like, okay, the Cavs just signed him to a maximum scale rookie-scale extension. They're they're tagging him as the one of the faces of the franchise. They're tagging him as the guard, lead guard of the franchise and probably the guard of the future for this team. But... He's probably going to show why he deserved that extension. And also, I think you're just going to see more from his game and just kind of that evolution. And then it's interesting because the experience they gained is valuable. Let's see if they don't fall flat on their face this season, just because now no one's really going to be surprised by these young and scrappy Cavaliers. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You touched on Mobley there. We need to ask you about the Mobley hype train, a train with all of the amenities, all the classes, uh, obviously an exceptional pick by the Cavs last year and an exceptional talent, runner-up rookie of the year. Uh, for any team to make its way um, to the level of contender, you need like a top 10-ish talent, right? Do you see that as the ceiling for Mobley, becoming a top 10 talent in the league? So that's an interesting question. I, I don't know what his ceiling quite is because I, I, I don't like the term unicorn because it got used a little bit too much when Porzingis came out. And every player that showed like a little bit of a unique skill set became a unicorn and it felt like a lazy archetype to put on a player. But he, he truly is unique where he's a he's a seven footer that has a lot of guard skills. You could see like some of the playmaking chops to the fact that he's able to facilitate from the elbow. The defensive stuff and his acumen just on that side of the ball and just how smart and like 
good he is in understanding team concepts and NBA-level offenses just in his rookie season really makes him enticing on that end. And he showed flashes of potential on offense. I'm not saying like he was an abject disaster offensively when I said he had no bag. Like He, he really took advantage of the fact that he was playing with Ricky Rubio and Darius Garland for the better part of last season. And I also just think having some spacing around him helped a lot, too. But I was talking to a scout about this a while back, uh, probably maybe either early into his rookie season or heading into it, where some people had him pegged as like a possible, if he, you know, bulks up at, not gets on that Giannis workout plan, because I think that's just unrealistic for any person, but if he bulks up a little bit, if he adds a little bit of just something to his offensive repertoire, like he could be one of the top players in the league, maybe an MVP candidate, maybe a defensive player of the year candidate. I think... Darius Garland right now arguably is the best player on the Cavs, but Evan Mobley is probably going to be coming for him in the next year or two and just kind of just eclipse him and just keep sprinting past him at that point just because his potential is just so crazy. And the fact that he is just such a solid foundation and solid skill set makes it really easy to sell you on the idea of him being the best player in, let's say, three, four years' time. Yeah, I'm personally very excited to see year two for Mobley. Honestly, that that whole draft class from last year, like Cade, Scotty, and Mobley, and Giddy being Aussie, like some of these guys um, were absolutely incredible. Um, and Mobley specifically, like I really can relate to Cavs fans and how excited they are because it reminds me a lot of when Tatum was drafted and how he had such an awesome rookie year. And you just and they're so young, and you can just, you, especially you see the defense, you see some of the versatility potential offensively. We're getting some of the hype videos in the offseason, like, you know, deepening the bag, um, getting getting the Gucci bag out, as as the kids say these days, I, <laughs> I believe. Um, yeah, so I and I, I love I love I love the the idea of and the concept of drafting a guy versus having to have traded for your franchise cornerstone. And something I think that the Cavs are gonna be able to really enjoy is like that homegrown feeling like Garland you know, making his first all-star team, as you said. But, yeah, Mobley's going to be right on his heels, I expect, um, this year, uh, which is very exciting for Cavs fans. And I guess looking at the offseason as a whole, is there anything, like, you wish that the, the Cavs could have gotten done? I mean, they mostly stood pat. You mentioned um, re-signing Rubio. Um, I know part of the reason we're having uh, the experts on is because when the Cavs play the Celtics and someone, like, Abaji hits six threes potentially. It's not a complete shock and everybody freaks out on Twitter. There's, you know, maybe some expectation behind some of that happening. So is there mm-hmm. anything off season wise that they could have gotten done or anything like that? Well, it's tricky because heading into the off season, just the draft alone, I mean, like let's be frank, they traded that first round pick along with Rubio to get Karis Levert to begin with, and they did make the playoffs to so get the first back and like every NBA team, they did their due diligence. But I think Kobe Altman kind of assessed that the Cavs needed to add a lot of athleticism, a lot of shooting, um, some tertiary playmaking, just some secondary playmaking to support Garland. Because you really saw last season that when his back was acting up and after Rubio went down, the Cavs were really scrambled. That's why they traded to get Rajon Rondo, which Rondo is a... The mind is rock solid, but body his body physically just can't hang anymore. And you kind of saw that <laughs> at that times feeling. too. And then... <laughs> you see Brandon Goodwin out there. You see Kevin Pangos getting serious minutes for the Cavs. It's so they they addressed a lot of their needs. I think being so close to the luxury tax, I think they're 13 million under the luxury tax threshold right now and the Cavs just kind of being a team where they are young and inexperienced and not quite a like a championship caliber team yet, so they don't need to be dipping their toes into that area quite yet. And then the fact that they're limited roster-wise right now, like heading into camp, they're completely full in terms of guaranteed rosters, I think, in both their two-way spots are full filled. So we have to kind of focus on the Colin Sexton aspect with that. That's yeah. that's kind of what just sticks out in my mind when I look at that. But I, I don't think there was much they could do. I'm always an advocate of them. Hey, they need to add some type of wing depth. Like, sure, they can play big. Sure, they can say Larry Markin is a, they could play the three in hypothetical lineups. And I understand the Cavs saying they play positionless ball and they try to play to their strengths. And Markin, in theory, makes sense as a spacer next to Mobley and Allen, if you look at it that way. But at the same time, it's just tricky because you say, like, okay, Kyle Anderson is a guy I know they spoke to, and it just didn't work out, and Anderson moved on from them. And TJ Warren is a guy they were willing to take a stab with with their mid-level exception, but 
Warren decided to head to Brooklyn instead, which, you know, makes sense, especially if KD and Kyrie do come back and they just have the most dysfunctional fun ops regular season <laughs> next year. But <laughs> there were a lot of guys the Cavs could have targeted. I think they know they're a non-glamour market as an organization and a destination. Like, I, I love Cleveland, but the first time I get a blast of winter wind in my face, I'm just like, you know, I could have lived anywhere else. I could have been a fan <laughs> and covered any other team in the NBA at this point. But it's I don't have a lot of criticism that I think it was pretty a pretty vanilla offseason. I think signing Garland to a rookie scale max was a high priority for them. And I think wrapping that up right away, like they did at Jared Allen last offseason is a clear indicator that like, hey, Garland and then Allen off last offseason are like key pieces to this team. And then just bringing back Rubio, but also getting more high-quality insurance while Rubio recovers from that ACL tear again was smart. And then I think, again, no disrespect to guys like Ed Davis, but finding maybe a veteran who can give you a little bit more juice than Ed Davis and Robin Lopez is another smart move and just kind of something interesting I've been watching with them. And I don't know, maybe they have another trick up their sleeve at this point, but they're kind of locked in financially and roster-wise, so... Until they figure out the call on sex and stuff, I think they're pretty much done, and I can't criticize them too much for that. Awesome. I mean, there's one there's one player who I, I haven't mentioned uh, that I know is quite divisive on. I've, I've been doing my, my Cavs Twitter deep dive in preparation for this, mm-hmm. and um, Okoro, a player that I think is a little polarizing um, and a player that I see um, potential similarities with with a player on the Celtics who had a really good year last year um, with Grant Williams who had pretty solid rookie year, like showed some flashes in the playoffs where the Celtics made the Eastern Conference of the bubble, kind of had a disastrous second year, um, but then came in and the main thing that he fixed was his jump shot and became one of the most prolific corner shooters in the NBA. And like, that's clearly the swing skill for Okoro. I was listening to you guys' episode and uh, was it, uh, um, I think he, he had more wide open threes and like anyone else in the league or something like that. Um, so like his 35% looks okay, but um, no one's guarding him. So it's like, he doesn't can't actually, the, it doesn't pass yeah. the eye test. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. What, uh, yeah. What are you, it, it, it's yeah. tough. I like Isaac as a player. I think he's a good dude. I think he he plays with a little bit of swagger. Like I appreciate him at least as a media member of him saying like, "Yeah, I'm one of the best perimeter defenders in the league." Like I don't doubt that. And you can see defensively the game slowed down for him in his second season, where JB Bickerstaff shared with the media midway into the last season that during his rookie season they said, "Okay, Isaac, you were drafted during the pandemic shortened." off season quote unquote and like you have like a month to prepare for the NBA at this point we just want you to go out there and defend the best perimeter player and play them hard if you foul that's okay this is a learning experience and the Cavs kind of just try to scrap their way into a play in spot once it went out of reach you saw them shamelessly tank and it got them Evan Mobley so (laughs) kind of worked out in the end but uh, like you said Okoro is polarizing because you can see the and we talked about this on my show a lot because you can see the vision and you can see the potential with him as a player he's not quite Andre Iguodala as some people may try to paint him as where I think that's just unfair because Iguodala is like a Mm. Hall of Fame caliber talent I think that's just kind of unfair expectations for a young guy especially in some unprecedented circumstances in a coral but offensively he's just a bit shaky at times for Cleveland I think last season <clears throat> I was talking to my co-host about this and I've talked to several people around the league about this if the, the Cavs didn't have the season they did last year I think they would have had the runway for Isaac to kind of grow develop and learn from those mistakes especially on the offensive side of the ball like they did on his rookie season with the defensive side of the ball and instead when the Cavs kind of just figured out like oh we have a winning team here like we have a team that could really make a push for the playoffs like we need Isaac to do X and Y, but maybe not so much as Z with the Z being perimeter shooting or ball handling or things like that. But the problem with that is, and especially when they're playing Boston or teams like Milwaukee or teams that are just smart defensively and just like understand the assignment and are just well schooled on their opponent. Like you could see, especially like Boston is my prime example of this. Cause I noticed a lot whenever they played the Celtics, like, the Boston would put Tatum or Brown on a Coro, and then one of those two would just sag off of him on the perimeter and then either act as a free safety or just act as a disruptor to either fluster Darius Garland or just somebody else on the Cavs floor on the floor for the Cavs at that time. And it really mucked up the offense quite a bit. And the problem is 
when Isaac had the ball on the perimeter, teams dare him to shoot it. And like a lot of guys kind of know what that's like around the league, of course. But I don't know if I see him becoming like an unlocked down lights out shooter like some fans are kind of hoping for. My co-host and I were talking about this where there's ways for him to make an impact. But I really do think that if he's able to become a just average or slightly below average three-point shooter that that's where he's going to make his biggest impact as a player next season yeah Okoro is this guy that I I continue like since he was drafted to pick up off the waivers in fantasy like this is it <laughs> this is the move Okoro the upside's there it's gonna turn my team around and so far it hasn't worked out but hopefully he's just jacking three somewhere in a gym right now hopefully there's some mystical thing that uh, leads him to continue missing those threes against the Celtics. Um, mm-hmm. But really, I hope the best for him as far as uh, <laughs> developing that part of his game. Expectations going into next season, like it's such a... Um, uh, the one's enjoyment of the season hinges so much on the expectations going into it. And I would argue that lower expectations actually lead to more fulfillment from a fan perspective mm-hmm. and that those expectations are either met or they're exceeded. Like those are the only two options. That said, yeah. the over-under for the Cavs heading into this season, right in the middle there, 41.5. Um, does that align with your expectations, and would you be taking the over or the under on that on that line? So it depends on health, obviously. I think it depends on just the scope of the Eastern Conference, too. Those are just things you can never predict. Uh, injuries are something you wish on no one, but they're also something no one can ever expect to happen. Like, if you're expecting injuries, like, you probably shouldn't leave your house ever because something bad's <laughs> going to bound to happen to you sooner or later if you carry that kind of mindset. But yeah, I, I, I think 41 and a half is, is a good spot for them to be where they could be above 500 or slightly below 500, depending on how things break for them. And let's be frank, it's tricky because you have teams like Boston, Miami, Milwaukee. Brooklyn's a bit of a wild card. Atlanta's pretty good. Um, you have Chicago, Toronto. who I think is going to be yeah. better if they're healthy this season. Toronto's going to be pretty good this year, too. New York could be solid enough, but we'll see what happens. Um, like You have teams that are just like actively trying to be bad, and those are the Magic, the Pistons, the Pacers, possibly the Wizards, depending on what happens, just because they're just an odd franchise to begin with. But And the Hornets are also kind of in that conversation in the mix of things, too. Because So the Cavs kind of have the odds stacked against them, where like the East is... like There's like there's a clear echelon of elite teams in the Eastern Conference, but it's going to be fairly competitive 1 through 10 or 1 through 11. So if I had... If you asked me today, I'd take the over on them, but it'd be a slight over. I'm saying like 43, 44 wins on the season feels realistic for them. I don't see them winning the Central. I see them finishing third in the Central, just behind Chicago, or second in the Central if they pass the Bulls. But like they're not passing Milwaukee, and clearly they're better than Indiana and Detroit right now. But they could be in the conversation and be out of the play-in tournament, but they also could be a play-in team. Like I had a reader asking this question in the mailbag, like, what do you expect from them? And I said, it's hard to fully gauge in July and August right now, but... If you ask me right now, like if they were a playing team, I wouldn't be surprised. But I also wouldn't be surprised if they're one of those teams who nearly avoid it and end up being like the fifth or sixth seed in the East. Yeah, it, I, I, I like this number to bet on personally um, for the over. Like I see the Cavs in that group with the Raptors and the Hawks and the Bulls. Those like you know, and Miami. Miami is a weird one. Like I've kind of said, I'm done expecting them to be bad, even though, like, they, they've lost talent and they haven't replaced it yet. That is with a one seed, like, all, constantly proving people wrong. So, like, I think betting against them is a foolish proposition. But, like, the Hawks, I think, have six more wins on their over-under. I don't – I think they have plenty of questions to answer as well. Um, so, I think of that group, I think the Cavs might have the best value. I like their – I like their defensive floor. I think, you know, they were top five last year. I think that could be tricky to repeat again. But with Mobley having a second year and Jared Allen being one of the best rim protectors in the league, I think your defense is going to be pretty solid. And so I think that gives you a pretty Mm -hmm. nice floor. I'd probably go the over as well. Um, Ben, what do you you have this one on? Yeah, I just – I really – respect and love the Cavs and I'm, I'm not just pandering to you there Evan like I just everything that they've done in a in this post LeBron era I just find like that they, they are the moves of like a poised well-run franchise and if you're 
probably more involved in the Cavs than I am, then you might nitpick at that statement. But um, I just think that they've really recovered well from LeBron just kind of leaving in the, in the way that he tends to do. Um, so I would take the over. I just think that the defense is there. We've seen how fa- foundational defense um, is really the like the figurehead of a successful team in the modern NBA, as well as shooting, which they have you know, somewhat. Um, so I'm I'm taking the over. I just um, I you know like you said, there's a bunch of young players there who are primed for improvement, and uh, I, I want to take the over. I want to see the Cavs do well, so I'm taking the over. Speaking of a young player potentially poised for improvement, we have a <laughs> great segue. Uh, Thank you. Um, uh, I read a question from user Remote North four one six six about the improvement and potential of Larry Markkinen. The potential of Larry aging like a fine wine. Um, what do you what, what are your thoughts on Larry? I know you kind of touched on him earlier. I, I know. I mean, great. He's talking about shooting and that being a need on the Cavs. Like he provides that with size. Like he's able to get that shot off against pretty much anyone, um, especially when he's kind of playing in those jumbo lineups. And he's matched up against some smaller guys. Um, I, I, I have one of my best friends is a Bulls fan, and I, so I've kind of been tapped into Lowry from the beginning. And I, I was really happy to see mm-hmm. him move over to the Cavs and get a chance to show a bit more of what he can do because I feel like he didn't get a fair run in Chicago. Um, so I liked what I was able to see from Lowry last year. But I mean, obviously, defensive questions, stuff like that. Um, what are the, what are the thoughts on Lowry? Still only twenty five, so a bit of improvement potentially mm-hmm. still to come. I agree that him moving on from Chicago was the best. I think sometimes a, a change of scenery can help a player a lot. And when J.B. Bickerstaff first announced that Larry Markman was going to be starting three for the Cavs with Mobley at the four and Allen at the five, like it raised a few eyebrows, of course, because Chicago tried to experiment with Larry at the three at times just to try and make him work as a player, especially when they started adding more players at the four spot and trying to maybe kind of build around him as one of the head pieces next to Zach Levine. And then just obviously didn't work out, but he was, he was, he was good. Like you said, like he was very good for the Cavs. There was clear indications, just especially in clutch situations that he was a player that helped the Cavs more often than not, especially with his spacing. He provides, he is seven foot. So he provides you rebounding and some just overall, just presence on the glass and on the interior as well. Like he's not like a great, great defender, but I think because you're able to make him work the three, or how you're able to make him work at the three rather is because you have two defensive dynamos and just like such an odd and unique tandem and odd and unique in like the nicest way possible in Mobley and Allen just to kind of cover up those miscues and mistakes where if Markinen gets kind of cooked, like you saw it in the game against Memphis when they opened the season, like John Morant and Desmond Bain each took turns like picking and targeting Markinen and pick and roll scenarios and forcing him to defend in isolation and Again, granted, more often than not, it worked. I think the Cavs are still figuring it out. But then the second time they played Memphis, Morant and Bain and everybody else on the Grizzlies tried to do it again. And you saw Mobley and Allen make the adjustments and corrections to kind of ball off the rim a little bit and make it a little bit harder and keep the defense honest and try and make them hurt them from the perimeter. And like you mentioned, I think on offense, the three-point shooting that Markin provides, one, makes the tandem of... Mobley and Allen work because when the Cavs open the season, you're only real two true, true shooters in the starting five were Markman and Garland with Sexton being a selective three point shooters. How I like to call him where he has really good numbers, but he doesn't take a ton of them on his vol- mm-hmm. at a vol- high enough volume. So you have to say like, yes, he's a good three point shooter, but how good is he kind of situation? But if you have a guy at the three who just provides you three, provides you three point shooting, like that's going to make your two bigs, like two seven footers who could each play the five function a little bit better and make it a little bit more of a cleaner fit too. And also as he got more comfortable and I think after he recovered from COVID and just some of the other injuries he was dealing with, like he became a very high impact player for the Cavs and, some folks have reported and I've kind of heard similar sentiments with the Cavs to view him as a player where maybe he's not like, you know, part of this like key, key foundation in the quote unquote big three Cleveland is built, but like he wouldn't be as easily moved or as accessible as maybe some of the other players on Cleveland's roster unless it took an offer that blew them away because let's be frank, Larry Nance Jr. approached them maybe a little bit before this time last summer and said, Hey, I want to move on. This just isn't working for me. Like I love the Cavs. I grew up a fan. My dad was a legend, blah, blah, blah. We can go down the Mm -hmm. list. And the Cavs were able to get a first round pick because Chicago didn't want Nance and they were able to get marketing for it. And like, it was a pretty good return on the trade, especially with you saw how everything else went. And 
It, it certainly makes things interesting, and I think having 82 games together, them playing this, like, weird, big three, li- like, super big lineup at three through five, like, is a good place to start. I think teams have a lot of footage on it, and they have to kind of find new creative ways to exploit mismatches and just find creative ways to kind of keep it functional so it doesn't become a de- defensive miscue, but... For what you're paying marketing and what he provides, like he gives you a little bit of everything. Defensively, there's still those concerns that were there in Chicago, but it, it, he he was good, and I think you really saw like a huge drop off when he was out, whether it was COVID or he had that injury with believe with the high ankle sprain for a while. And if he has relatively good health, I think he can be a really key piece for Cleveland next season. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to seeing uh, what he can do for the Cavs. It certainly has the, uh, we talked about on a recent podcast, Jake, the dimensions of a good NBA player and obviously some skills to back yes. it up. So uh, hopefully that all comes to fruition this year. We're going to pivot slightly now, Evan. We've indulged you with buttered you up with some Cavs talk. We want you to <laughs> you know, reciprocate. We want to talk some Celtics here. Let's what did you it. think of the, the Celtics run to the finals? Like, Did you see it coming? I think a lot of Celtics fans didn't. Um, and were there any surprises for you? through that run, whether it be sort of moments throughout the playoffs or players who performed unexpectedly well or poorly, and who impressed you that you might not have expected to have impressed you? Well, Grant Williams just kind of being like an archetype of a player overall is just like every every team's just like, man, we could use a player like Grant Williams. We're like, I put him in that Hall of Fame of like, Chris Middleton is a player that every team wishes they could have a player like that on their roster too. But for the Celtics... I, I I was I was, but I wasn't surprised that they broke through because you have Milwaukee who finally got over the hump and won a championship. Budenholzer and it squashed a lot of the notions about him. Giannis really showed that he was able to kind of clutch it and win it, especially in a high intensity situation like it was against the Suns. And then you have the Heat, who are still a very good team. I think the Nets flaming out in spectacular fashion was just <laughs> fascinating to watch too, because I think a lot of people thought like, okay, this team could be legit. Like Philly was the same way, but I think people kind of underestimated the Celtics. Like they were a, a very, like a top five defensive team. They're a highly efficient offensive team. They're balanced on both ends. I think Yimi Udoka is the right coach for this team. I was always a big fan of his, like the Cavs interviewed him once or twice during their numerous head coaching vacancies and he never got the job, but I think this was the right fit for him. I think Brad Stevens made the right call stepping down and realized like I've reached my peak with this team. We need a fresh set of eyes. We need a fresh voice in the locker room. Like that was a very mature measured thing where like a lot of people are like, okay, what the heck's going on? This is record-wise a pretty successful coach for the Celtics. But, like, the Celtics took the right steps. I I love the Derek White acquisition. Um, I I was always a huge fan of his. So, like, getting him and making him, like, a key piece to what you're building as well, like, awesome move for them. And I think now, more than anything, the sting of defeat is really going to light a fire probably under Tatum and Brown especially because you have those two guys as your key pieces at at a, at a position that not many teams have uh, a high impact player, Cleveland included, and now Boston has two of them. Like they're in a really good spot to either I wouldn't say wait out, but they could be, they could be back in the finals this year, this upcoming season, and they could go up against Golden State or another team again. But like Golden State's going to be priced out soon. Uh, Milwaukee may kind of hit a little bit of their hill in their wall too, with Drew Holiday getting older and Chris Middleton getting older too. Like, this is like a prime position for Boston to kind of capitalize and ride this huge momentum wave that they got last season and then couple that with the overwhelming youth and depth they have at just so many key positions. Like, they they could really build something nice. And, like, Time Lord, he's awesome, too. I can't even believe I forgot him. Like, the, the Celtics have so many fun players at so many key positions, and you're envious of it. And I think just being historically great franchise and, again, Brad having the wherewithal to know that he needed to step away and kind of let a new voice step in. I think that was the first key decision, and that was just a domino that fell that kind of pushed everything else into place for them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, fantastic preaching to the, preaching to the choir over here. Um, I'm personally trying to yeah, balance. Like, say more. Yeah. <laughs> um, like <laughs> Sorry, the, the, the the reflection of of the finals has been um, tricky for I think a few Celtics fans, um, especially me. Like, um, I have some days where I watch some old games or old highlights, and it just fills me with joy. And other days, like. All I can kind of think about is is the end and the just the falling apart for three games in a row in the finals. Um, but yeah, I think and I think that to your point, Evan, about lighting a fire, uh, I'm very excited to see um, what this team looks like after after something like that. Uh, I've I've already compared uh, this team to the 2014 Spurs after they lost to Miami because Udoka was on that 
I like that. Um, yeah, on that on that team that lost to to Miami. Um, so I'm expecting exactly 62 wins like that Spurs team. Um, yeah. So <laughs> what did you think of the uh, off season additions of Brogdon and Gallinari? Well, if Gallinari and Brogdon are both able to stay healthy, those are high impact pieces. But the Celtics already have a pretty refined and pretty set rotation. So I I like the comparison with the 2014 Spurs. I also think about the 2017 Cavs where they were just lighting the world on fire offensively. And then they went and traded for Kyle Korver just because. And then they became like one of the best three point shooting teams of all time up to that point. We all (laughs) all know how the season ended for the Cleveland because they ran into Kevin Durant and the Warriors. But Mm -hmm. Boston is just the rich getting richer, I think. I mean, Brogdon, I think he's a very, very great player. Like, he could be high-impact player off the bench if he had to start in certain scenarios for Boston, just depending on the night and the matchup. Like, that makes a lot of sense, too. I think Gallinari, I like a lot as a player. I think he provides you three-point shooting, provides you size. Maybe uh, uh, something similar to what Larry Marketing provides to the Cavs a little bit, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit different as well, just because they're not apples to apples in terms of just how they are as players. But it, it's the rich getting richer, in my opinion. And I think also that this Celtics team <clears throat> is so... I mean, they have a clear pecking order with Brown and Tatum. Like Everyone knows those are your two alphas or whatever you want to call them on your team. But like everybody else is so bought into the concept of doing whatever it takes to make the team better and do whatever it takes in order to kind of get over that hump and get over the sting of losing in the finals like you did to Golden State, like adding guys like that who are comfortable with either coming off the bench or starting and like guys like Brogdon and Gallinari who are in the same vein as those everyone else on that roster, like that's only going to make the team better. And I think, again, the experience helps, but adding those two is a huge thing and it'll be fun. I don't know. I'm interested to see, like I like Brogdon's defense as well. Like I think he can be kind of Mm -hmm. fun next to Smart in theory. He can be fun next to White as well. Like there's a lot of, Creative ways that Ime Yodoka can kind of tinker with his lineups and just kind of make nights frustrating for other teams on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, I agree. Brogdon is like the one who can be slotted in regular season playoffs and isn't really going to give up too much defensively, as opposed to Gallinari, who like he's going to get spot, you know, situational uh, minutes, particularly in the regular season. But I, th- I think he may get played off the court uh, in the playoffs, which is not an original thought of mine. It's sort of widely expected among fans. Um, last like Celtics specific question before we move on to how the, the season, the Cavs kind of gel together in the future. Um, and please bear with me while I ask this question about Peyton Pritchard, but I only ask because I think there are some similarities <laughs> between our situation with Pritchard and the Cavs situation with Colin Sexton. Although Colin Sexton is obviously the superior talent. Um, Asking for a Reddit user, Blinded57, who made a post basically arguing like we're tanking Peyton Pritchard's value, uh, keeping him so far down the guard depth chart. Um, what do Cavs fans, this is a very self-indulgent question, I apologize. What do Cavs fans think of Peyton Pritchard, but if at all, I guess? And do you see him having some value as a trade piece for the Celtics? And, and do you see any similarities between that situation and the Cavs-Sexton situation? I don't necessarily see similarities. I like Peyton Pritchard as a player personally. I don't know how Cavs fans feel about him necessarily. I think if you're Boston, um, you, you've done a good job flipping some pieces to actually get actual depth pieces. Like you were able to get um, Derek White for a pretty real, pretty relatively fair trade offer. Like if you're Boston, like you got a pretty high impact player for not much at all. And like I think just Brad having experience and like. A lot of people maybe thought at first just at the offset, like, okay, this is a guy who is running an NBA organization for the first time. He's going to get raked across the coals in trades. It it hasn't appeared to be that case so far with just some of his acquisitions and some of the moves he's made. So you don't have to rush and really necessarily get rid of Peyton Pritchard. But if a right trade came along that you could upgrade this roster tangibly and maybe make a player or find another impact guy, maybe not necessarily a high impact guy, but a guy who can provide you something of value, whether it's in the playoffs or in spot minutes during the regular season or the playoffs as well, or like kind of just get you to that end goal of winning another championship. Like, yeah, I think there's going to be teams that'll sell you on the upside, especially some of the bad teams in the league. Like you look at, Indiana, like they're they're kind of having a bit of a fire sale right now. Like I know there people think some people think they're trying to retool around Miles Turner, but I think they're going to be ripping it out root from stem. So like Buddy Hield's going to be gone. Or like they, he like he's going to be a hot commodity for them. Or like you look at a team like the Lakers who 
are going to be bad next season unless they somehow shed Russell Westbrook's contract. But like, there's going to be teams who are calling about Taylor Horton Tucker as well if the Lakers try to use him as like a trade chip or something because like a bad team could sell them on the themselves on the potential of a player who has some shown flashes of potential, but maybe needs more of a runway to develop and to jump back to like the Isaac Coro points we were talking about mm-hmm. before. Like a guy like a Coro too. Like if guys like Pritchard or a Coro or even like Taylor Horton Tucker as well, like had that runway to develop and time to learn from their mistakes and just grow with actual in-game experience like that, that would shape their kind of destiny a little bit differently, but that's just how the NBA works sometimes. Like sometimes just there's things you can't control if you're a player as well, but the Sexton situation is complicated. I I say it's like a long vacation. It's a lot to unpack. So (laughs) it's two off seasons now that the Cavs haven't necessarily made him like a huge priority in terms of signing him. Like last year, they had an offer on the table that was similar to Bogdan Bogdanovich money, which is about 18.5 million, but with like incentives and escalators in it to maybe bump that up to 20 million annually. And then Sexton's camp came back and said, no, it was so at the end, it'd be like a five year, hundred million deal. So Sexton's camp came back and said, no, we want it to be more something closer to 25 million annually. Because mm-hmm. if you look at it, Colin is, in theory, an elite three-level scorer, even though he's a 6-1 shooting guard, and he does not play the best on the defensive side of the ball, but, like, he provides you a lot of things. The Cavs have kind of toted him as, like, the face of the franchise up to this point, and, like, one of the key pieces culturally and everything else, and he makes a compelling argument. <clears throat> and then when he didn't get the offer he wanted, he decided to decline the offer and bet on himself, which makes sense if you want to get top dollar, especially when heading, and you're actually heading into free agency, go ahead and just bet on yourself. I get it. And... Unfortunately, he then hurt his knee, and it, that's when it just gets really, really tricky for the Cavs because that was 11 games into the year, and a lot of people thought, myself included, like, wow, this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back on what's maybe a promising season so far for this Cavs team, and they kept climbing, they kept winning, and I think that injury kind of was the first straw that hit the camel's back, and then the Rubio injury was a way bigger straw, and then like you saw Garland having issues, and we talked about it before. Injuries were just a big issue for this Cavs team yeah. in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, Peyton Pritchard, I would, would love to have the um, the problem of potentially turning down a $15 million per year deal. That's that's for sure. <laughs> One day. Who knows? Yeah, you never, yeah this, is, this is the problem with Celtics, so screwing his value. He, if he got all those yeah. sexton minutes, maybe um, he'd be getting that contract. Um, but yeah, for any fans that maybe are poo-pooing any um, value that Peyton Pritchard has, I recommend watching the fourth quarter of the Brooklyn Nets-Boston Celtics Game 2 series where he took over the fourth two, quarter. Yes. Yep. Yep. Where I was in the oh, building. So good. Um and it was pee pee time. So um don't don't sleep. <laughs> don't sleep on that guy. Um all right, looking ahead, let's um let's imagine that uh Adam Silver's co- cooked up a new um tournament idea and for whatever reason the Cavs and Celtics are playing a playoff series to start the season. Um what 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 does that series look like? I think um, it's it's an interesting matchup. They had some funny games last year because um, both you know any time teams are playing throughout the season, you've got injuries and stuff like that. But the Cavs caught the Celtics in the midst of their um, malaise, where uh, the Celtics blew a twenty point lead. And Mobley had this incredible game this fourth quarter where he was hitting turnarounds over Tatum. I was just imagining it from the Cavs' mm-hmm. perspective and how. Incredible that that would have felt with Mobley torching um, Tatum, but yeah, there, there was like a Nee Smith, uh, Romeo Langford, Grant Williams, Pritchard lineup out there. It was um, kind of some PTSD, I think, for me going back and looking at some of those earlier earlier games in the se- in the season. But um, I think it would be a fun matchup between the the Cavs and the Celtics. I think you kind of touched on the Cavs' lack of wing wing depth. I think that would probably be the the, the probably the the kind of the main turning point in the series, but um, how do you see a a potential series like that going? So that's an interesting question. I I don't see it going long for the Cavs, but I'd I'd give them respect of maybe like Boston and five, like Cleveland has one of those games where Evan Mobley just goes unconscious and is hitting turnaround jumpers, but (laughs) that's just not how he functions as a player typically. And maybe he has a dramatic leap in his second season and he can prove me wrong. And I'm more than happy to say I was wrong if that's the case, but we talked. We touched on it a little bit too. It's just it, it's tricky because at the two guard spot, if Colin Sexton isn't back, you're you're operating with 
Isaac Okoro, but Harris Levert will likely be the starter in that situation. And then you have Ochai Abaji as a rookie as well, where like Abaji is the only true quote unquote shooter out of those three. And if you're Boston, let's say Isaac Okoro's on the floor and he's not shooting, you can just propel the same, to deploy the, excuse me, the same strategy where you sag Brown or Tatum off him and just let that be a disruptor on defense and really muck things up for Cleveland on the interior, on the perimeter, elsewhere. I think Milwaukee and Golden State as well really gave a template on how to like frustrate the Cavs offensively too. And if you deploy Marcus Smart on Darius Garland, like there was a game I remember where they played the Bucks and Drew Holiday literally had Darius Garland in hell for 38 minutes where he just absolutely put the clamps on him. And then the offense just completely fell apart because Garland just looked flustered because you had holiday throwing himself at him and then on switches chris middleton would join in on the fun and then sometimes Giannis would just stretch out to the perimeter as well and like good luck against him when you're 6-1 going up against Giannis, and it just kind of trickled down from there where the offense kind of fell apart because you just lost rubio you had no the true like offensive creators on the floor to kind of get your big men going as well because Markin is not creating his own shot on his own neither is mobley or allen and Neither is Kevin Love or Jetty Osman or anybody else who's getting minutes for that Cavs team at that juncture. So I, I'm willing to give Cleveland the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they take one, possibly two. But I think Boston would be like a very heavy favorite in that series. It'd be a fun one for sure. I think it really yeah. puts into perspective how good of a place the league is in just in terms of just pure raw young talent. But Boston having that valuable playoff experience and just kind of knowing what it takes to handle those high pressure situations like that really is a difference maker because I also do think about when the Cavs had a very ugly loss to the Pistons towards the end of last season where they flew into Detroit on like a Sunday afternoon and just got mopped off the floor by the Pistons and Darius Garland postgame snapped at the media and said like hey we haven't been here before like we're under a lot of stress a lot of pressure like this is this is Mm -hmm. tense for us and then everyone keeps saying like hey we can't play tight we have to like just kind of be calm enjoy ourselves learn how to have fun again out there which isn't good things to be saying when you're kind of free falling down the Eastern conference standings. So if the Celtics turn up the pressure a little bit, we have to see how the Cavs respond. But for now, just based on last year, you got to say like maybe one or two games in Cleveland's favor, but Boston just, it just takes it at the end. The, The thing that worries me so much from the Celtics perspective is like the defensive anchors in the paint there for the Cavs. So Jarrett Allen and Evan Mobley, like typically the Celtics have struggled to get into the paint in general, mm-hmm. and then finishing against, you know, two huge defensive tyrants like that, um, I, you know, I think could be problematic for the Celtics. But I mean, if we're talking within the context of a playoff series, like you mentioned, Evan, it does come down somewhat to individual shot creation and, and things of that nature. And I do think, you know, with Tatum, your first team All-NBA, that's that's our huge strength going into a series like that. So I would see the Celtics coming out on top. But like you said, really do see the Cavs giving us a good run for our money. Yeah, as LeBron said, Tatum's so good four times over, and that was yeah. <laughs> back in 2018. So he's only gotten better since then. Yeah, I think it would be, yeah, I'd be banging the unders on a lot of those games. I think Cavs would be struggling to score with the backcourts of the Celtics giving Garland some issues, and and vice versa with the the twin towers in the middle there. Um, all right, now moving on to the Schadenfreude rankings. Um, you know, part of NBA fandom isn't just rooting for your favorite team, but it's rooting against which teams you sports hate. Um, I know Celtics aren't everybody's favorite teams, uh, everybody's favorite team. And I know the Cavs and the Celtics have kind of had um, a bit of a history going back the last seven-ish years, um, even before that, back before LeBron went to Miami, but specifically um, the IT Celtics era and then LeBron destroying the Celtics in Game 7 of the conference finals. So, yeah, I think probably the Cavs feel a little more positive maybe than, than Celtics mm-hmm. fans about this. But, um, yeah, how does, do you think your Cavs fans feel about Celtic success in general? <laughs> I think there's some fans who are a little older. I think younger fans now are getting to know this Cavs team and become a fan as this team grows. Maybe don't understand it, but when I was growing up, like, I was there – where it was a lot of it was LeBron versus Boston, especially during the yeah. first stint, and then that really carried over to Miami with especially because they couldn't get over the Celtics hump or they couldn't get over the Bulls hump in Miami. Then it recontinued back in Cleveland when he came back as well, where there's a bit of battles and like there's the chippiness with like Jay Crowder getting laid out by yeah. J.R. Smith or Kendrick <laughs> Perkins soon after that. 
or Isaiah Thomas and the Kyrie trade. Like, there's a lot of baggage between yeah. these two teams, for better or for worse. I think the Eastern Conference Finals really put into perspective, I think, LeBron's greatness, just because I think that playoff run he had was just insane, where they almost lose to the Pacers in the first round. And then the heavily favored Raptors, they sweep. And then the young up-and-coming Celtics take it to seven. And, like, that was just a very good series. And then you watch J.R. Smith dribble out the clock in the closing moments <laughs> of game one of the finals. And one and a great meme was born from that. But uh, I, I don't know if, like, the younger Cavs fans necessarily hate the Celtics that much mm-hmm. or, like, draw the ire of them. But I think the Celtics just being Boston and being one of, like, those historic franchises, like, you're going to have haters no matter where you are on the road or even at home. Like, there's <laughs> going to be haters who travel and watch the team as well, too. It's just, like, winning kind of breeds that. And I think if you maintain humility and things like that, it's a little easier to root for you guys. But, like... The, the it's like the Warriors. Like the Warriors really became like the Cleveland's mm-hmm. like biggest ire for the longest time and like Cleveland fans hated the Golden State Warriors and I think the feeling was mutual. But as soon as LeBron left, <laughs> some Cavs fans still carried those sentiments and the Warriors just kinda treated them like an afterthought, came in and like treated like another winter game in the middle of the NBA the doldrums of the NBA season. So I I think it's maybe not as there as much just because LeBron isn't here. Now, let's say LeBron does come back for the third reunion tour with Cleveland. Maybe you could kick some flames or something like that. Maybe Paul Pierce says something he shouldn't say on TV or (laughs) Kevin Garnett says something as well. That seems likely. It's inevitable. Who knows? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But we'll we'll see what happens there. But I think the younger fans don't know it as much. And I think maybe more than anything, they just look at the Celtics and they're like, that's the way to build. And then I respond with, well, that's a very unconventional way to build because players like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown just aren't growing on trees. Yeah. Well, let me see if we can find some common ground here, Evan, as far as shot of voter rankings. And it's great to hear that, like, for at least yes. for the current period of time, the Celtics aren't pride and place on, on the top of the shot of voter rankings for Cavs fans. But for me, it's always the Sixers, the bloody Philadelphia oh, yes. 76ers. And just the whole notion of the process it's like the Scientology of sports beliefs. Like, its very <laughs> existence immediately diminishes its followers and their fans, like, they somehow keep coming in hot at the beginning of each season, coming in super confident and just, Embiid, this is going to be the finally the MVP season. And the, the, the thing that I equate it to, people talk about the resilience of cockroaches, like they can regrow legs that they've lost and they can make their own antibiotics and they've they've been around you know since prehistoric times but at the end of the day there's still fucking cockroaches and that's basically how i feel about sixes fans that's all i I got can we agree on that yeah we can agree on that i think the sixers getting harden and Embiid really amplified things especially Mm -hmm. when Embiid started the grift uh, of drawing free throws as well like Cavs fans really got heated when Philly won a game single-handedly, just like getting the Cavs to foul them a ton- bunch of times between Harden and Embiid both. And I think that really just... Yes. That and the whole Harden situation in general really just caused a lot of fans to zero in on it. Like, <laughs> the Sixers aren't fun to watch play basketball. I didn't have fun watching the Rockets play basketball when Harden was on that team. Like, the Nets were supposed to be fun, but they never just came to fruition. But, like, my buddy's a Sixers fan, and I agree with him all the time just because... They're going to get to the second round at best because I'm just like, hey, you yeah, you can't beat Milwaukee. Now you can't beat Boston. Miami's going to give you troubles too because James Harden disappears in the playoffs every year. And he's like, this year's the year, man. I'm like, it's not. Never will be. Yeah. No. <laughs> just, just quickly, because I know you're, you, you write a lot, you make a lot of content. Um, and you, and obviously the Cavs had those Toronto years. Um, have you experienced like the, the Toronto fans coming, coming in hot to, to the mentions? I, I, I've found some pretty intense. Online they're, they're, with those guys. Raptors fans are intense. So I'll give them that. They're passionate. I'll give them that. But like the ones I do know are nothing but pleasant in the interactions yeah. I had. I think, I think the Cavs making the Raptors the little brother for so long and like making Kyle Lowry like question, like people question like Kyle Lowry being the best point guard in the East. They question DeMar DeRozan's fit. Like, LeBron again crushing those Raptors in 2018 like sucked the soul. Lebronto, yeah, Lebronto. Like he became the mayor of that city in that playoffs. Like that forced the Raptors to go get Kawhi Leonard. And like I was just, I was just happy. I'm like, oh, this is a fun playoff run. Like it's another epic Philly choke job we're watching right now. But like that Raptors run with Kawhi was just hard to believe and awesome to take in. And like 
I don't know. I just, <laughs> I know some Cavs fans are probably more bitter than I am about the Raptors because things were so heated during like the, just the four years in LeBron's second stint here. But I have a lot of respect for what they do. Like, I like the way they play. I like Nick Nurse as a coach. I like a lot of mm-hmm. the players on the roster. I think Scotty Barnes is super fun now, but like, you experience one championship as a fan and no one can ever take that away from you. Like I, I'm, I tell my girlfriend like our plans are to get married and I'm just like, you do know, like that'll be the happiest moment of my life. I'm like, nothing will pay in comparison to June, 2016. She's just like, I, I, I don't, she's not a sports fan. So she's like, she doesn't get it. But I'm just like, I was sobbing on the floor of a bar and my brother had to pick me off off the sticky floor and I was just crying like a baby because I'm like, you go through some serious stuff, some serious PTSD and trauma as a fan and like, you get that one, one experience and I'm happy for him. But Raptors fans are just a little goofy now just because of the whole Scotty Barnes, possible Scotty Mm -hmm. Barnes, Evan Mobley rivalry, but those guys are both so mild-mannered. I don't see there ever being a rivalry on the court unless it's like media-driven. So, other than that, like, who knows? It's just fun basketball. Like I said, it just puts in perspective how good of a place the league is in because there's so many, like, talented teams, and, like, the Cavs Mm -hmm. are now, thankfully, part of that conversation, too. Yep. Um, That's good. Yeah, the the Raptors fans I know in real life are fantastic. Um, Maybe this is my fault for being too online, um, and... I need to work on that. Oh, no, you're no, all I, good. I need to take anti-nausea <laughs> medication before I interact with any Raptors fans. They were actually second on my <laughs> shot of photo rankings, by the way. Sorry, I digress. <laughs> yes. Um, cool. I mean, okay, la- last question before we before we get out of here. Um, do you think the Celtics should trade Jalen Brown for Kevin Durant as part of the Kevin Durant package? We're kind of getting the pulse of our guests on this one. Um, this is, mm. Yeah. Before we tell you what we think on this one. It's a tough question because Kevin Durant is arguably one of the best players in the league. It depends on how you feel about Giannis and maybe LeBron this season as well. And then like Tatum is probably entered that top five conversation and stuff as well. Like those, those like your five guys. And then you have, again, the league's super talented, but like, if in your heart of hearts trading for Kevin Durant and you believe like that pushes, that is the player that'll push you over the edge and get you over that hump or like, okay, we have a, a very, very talented player, a hall of famer on our roster and like still has many years under his contract and like has is still in his prime, technically speaking. Like I, I could see it happening, but how much do you want to rock the boat is the question. Cause like, do you want to do too much or do you maybe want to wait this out, run it back and see where Boston's at? Because this could be a long, long, long trade cycle. Like the Celtics don't have to rush into anything. And I don't think they really are going to, cause that's just not how they operate as an organization. But if you like looking closer to the deadline and the Celtics are like, Oh no, we're in a, we're in an okay-ish place, but like, we need to be better. Like, yeah, you pull the trigger that costs you Jalen Brown. Maybe you're willing to swallow that pill, but remain the course. See what you have. You were very close to winning a championship with this current roster. You made some marginal moves to kind of tweak things and also added like a possible high impact player in Brogdon as well. Like you see what you have there and then maybe go forward with it. But yeah, I would, I would do it but I would wait to see what you had before maybe you pull the trigger on it. All right. Okay. Um, personally, <laughs> this I can't do it. Um, Jalen, Jalen means too much to me at this point. Um, I understand one, I that, that too. Can, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that they won. They can just get it done with this current core. And um, it would just, yeah. I, I And losing Jalen and, and getting it done without him, which is, wouldn't feel right. Um, but yeah, I, I know Ben has similar sentiments there. I have nothing else to add. <laughs> you said it all, Jake. <laughs> no, that that's yeah. that's completely fair. Like Jalen Brown's really, really freaking good. Like when the Celtics were looking kind of choppy, and like people were like saying, "Oh, is he available?" I'm like, I don't really think he is, but okay, because <laughs> yeah. he's just so talented. And like, and the yeah. asking price for him would be very high if the Celtics were ever to entertain a trade for him. So correct. But, it's yeah, I, and it's, I don't uh, think they would either. Yeah, it's a it's a Kevin Durant level price, um, and I think that 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 speaks to how good Jalen has been. But um, but yeah, mate, thank you so much for for coming on and talking some Cavs and some Celtics as we make thank our you. way through the off season. Looking forward to um to the season and what's in store for the Cavs. Oh no, thanks for having me. You guys have to keep me up to date on the Australia side of things with Luke Travers, just because I don't think yes. I can stay up that late to watch him play with Perth, but. 
he was he was fun for the summer league Cavaliers. I will say that much. And um, the, yes. the mullet, the mustache, just him yes. being unapologetic to himself <laughs> is something that really resonated with a lot of fans during his just brief time in Vegas. Hell yeah! I mean, yes, the Larry Bird. There was some Larry yeah. Bird photoshops and stuff going around. <laughs> um, yeah, Australia. That's what we seem to produce at the moment. Is like six foot seven guys that kind of do everything um, besides shoot. So. Um, yeah, uh, I'm I'm so excited to watch Travers um, for the Wildcats coming up this season, and so yeah, we'll we'll keep you updated, no doubt. Appreciate it. No, I appreciate it, guys. <laughs> but yeah, thank you again for having me. Awesome, Ben. Good to see you again, my friend. Thanks for having me. Great to be in the co-host chair, and uh, always Jake doing a great job as the as the new host. So appreciate it. All righty, well that will do it for the, another episode of the Celtics Radio Podcast. Peace.